Good evening. It can be a nasty business teaching philosophy at a British university. When Professor Kathleen Stock got an OBE last month for services to higher education, 600 fellow philosophers worldwide signed a letter of protest. Invitations to speak at conferences have been withdrawn because other academics have said she makes them feel unsafe, even though she's appearing online on a different day. She compares her treatment to 17th century witch trials. It's strange to work somewhere where people make it quite clear they loathe you, she says. Professor Stock is a prominent target of the so-called cancel culture in British universities because she maintains biological sex is immutable. And although she says she's supportive of trans people, questions whether those she's described as male-bodied should be allowed into formerly women-only spaces. The government seems now intent on rolling back what it sees as the shutting down of free speech on campus, introducing new legal measures and appointing a free speech champion, inevitably dubbed a czar. There are those who see this as an opportunistic foray into the culture wars that seem to be taking over from politics as normal. They see the issue as safeguarding students from harm rather than imposing a woke orthodoxy, a matter simply of not tolerating intolerance. Others see a new era of censorship and self-censorship, stifling debate in our colleges. Free speech? Our moral maze tonight, the panel Anne McElvoy, senior editor at The Economist, Mona Siddiqui, professor of Islamic and interreligious studies at Edinburgh University, Ash Sarkar, editor at Navara, the left-wing media group, and the historian Tim Stanley. Tim, you seem to me inoffensive, if rather unfashionable, if I may say so. Have you um, ever been cancelled? I was once no platform from a, uh, from Oxford University, that's correct. Uh, and it was a troubling experience, although it did get me out of the engagement, so it wasn't all bad. I was an academic for several years, and I never had any trouble with no platforming, but that was a long time ago. And I've since then come out as a conservative journalist, mm-hmm. and I wonder if I can even get a job at a university today. And the fact that I fear I might not be able to get a job tells me that something's changed on campus, that it's not good for universities, and it's not good for society. Mona Siddiqui, you're a professor at one of the country's leading universities. Do you recognise uh, that picture? I honestly don't see this moral panic anyway. I think there's a difference between free speech and absolute speech. And free speech is an abstract value which has been reduced, personally speaking, to a fight between left and right. And for me, what free speech is really about is a moral awareness that words have consequences and words can be weaponized. Anne McElvoy? Well, I haven't been cancelled yet, but the night is young. Um, I think that I start from a position that free speech, like a free press, is a form of liberalism on which we all depend to have the arguments that we should be having about our societies. But I would like to explore where that leads us in some of the more controversial material tonight. And Ash Sarkar. So for my sins, I'm a lecturer as well as a writer. I lecture at an art school in Amsterdam. And one of the things that stops me from doing the kind of teaching I want to do or the kind of research I want to do isn't cancel culture. It's not an army of woke students. It's the fact that I don't get paid beyond my contact hours. And I'm essentially a freelancer. I don't have any pension provision. I don't have sick pay. um, I don't have any job security. So for me, what's really interesting, aside from being able to see how a moral panic is concocted from the inside and how it's disseminated by you know, broadcasters like the BBC. The interesting thing for me is seeing freedom of expression parceled up and abstracted from other freedoms and rights, including the right to job security and decent pay. 
panel thanks. Our first witness is Eric Kaufman, Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College London and co-author of an influential report on academic freedom done by the think tank The Policy Exchange. Um, Professor Kaufman, odd, isn't it, do you think, that uh, two of the four members of this panel, the two who actually work in academia, don't think there is uh, any problem at all? Uh, How do you explain that? Well, I mean, it's a bit like uh, living in China. You know, if you're not going to criticize the government, you can have a normal a normal life and not perceive the kind of restrictions that are going on. I think the, the restrictions are felt most keenly by a sort of minority of maybe 3 to 5 percent, which are uh, conservatives or gender-critical gender feminists working in the social sciences and humanities. Our, our report very much shows that. It's If you look at that particular segment of academia, 50 percent of them report a hostile climate uh, in their departments for their views. Um, you have a 50 percent share who say they self-censor in their teaching, research, and academic discussion. And in fact, if we take Brexit supporting academics in the social sciences, um, fewer than two in ten say that they would be comfortable sharing their views. So this is quite pervasive, affecting thousands of academics. And so, Mona Siddiqui? Professor Kaufman, isn't there an irony in the notion that the government is going to appoint someone who is going to police what is and isn't said on university campuses? Not really. I I think we have to think about society as having three layers. That is, the government uh, is one layer, the citizens are another, but there's an intermediate layer of institutions. And you can get um, threats to liberty coming out of that intermediate layer, and the government uh, can actually act to protect the freedom of individuals. So, for example, if there is a gang outside my house not letting me emerge... I rely on the government to essentially police that gang and to arrest them, and that gives me my freedom. Similarly, if we look at the case of universities in the United States South in 1960, for example, that wanted to uh, restrict the rights of black students, the federal government had to come in to actually ensure those students had their rights. So in, in this case, what we have is a situation where the government is acting to protect the freedom of academics and students, which is under threat from the forces within the university. But but universities are autonomous institutions. Student unions have policies and rules in place. My feeling is that if someone doesn't invite you to speak, surely all that means is that they don't want to listen to your views, but you're more than welcome to share them elsewhere. I don't have a right to be invited. It's a privilege to be invited. You don't have a right to be invited. Absolutely right. And nobody is saying that student unions have to invite certain speakers. Uh, I think the problem arises when... uh, Outside forces or agitators um, are able to have the power to decide who does get to speak after they've been invited. So this is partly about universities upholding their obligations uh, to maintain a free speech culture, which they do have that obligation. So that's the violation. It's not technically the idea that all these associations have to invite certain speakers. That's not at all what we're saying. But then we live in an age of social media and people can post and and, and petition for all kinds of things. But your own report says that academics do not discriminate more than any other profession, nor does the left discriminate more than the right. And I would argue that there are far greater structural discriminations against women, against people of colour, against people who identify as gay or trans. And I put it to you that surely the struggles that they've come through, the sacrifices that they've made to have their voices heard, is worth far more than sacrificing everything at the altar of a few right, right-wing views. Oh, I, I certainly wouldn't want to sacrifice their uh, uh, rights uh, at, at all. But what I am, uh, what we do say in the report is, yes, left and right discriminate at equal rates, and academics and non-academics do as well. But when you have a very strong pronounced skew, and so there's about a 9-1 skew between left and right, 
um, among social science humanities academics that the effect of that is a high, actually quite a high level of discrimination. Uh, a, a worry about political discrimination because on a three or four person panel, anyone who comes out as conservative or gender critical knows that there's a very strong chance they're going to be discriminated against. And that contributes to this overall chilling effect, which I think these govern, government actions are designed to try and reduce. Ash Saka? You're right, Professor. Yeah. A review of 10,000 speaker events found that only six had been cancelled, and that's because four of them hadn't done the proper paperwork, one of them was a fraudster recru recruiting for a pyramid scheme, and the other one was Jeremy Corbyn, and it was because he had to be moved off campus for a larger venue. So there have been very few instances of no platforming or of speaker cancellation. Aren't you making a bit of a big fuss over a problem that doesn't exist? Well, you're absolutely right to mention that the number of such incidents is small. Now, I think the records we have show that it has risen substantially in, in the U.S. in 2015 and in the U.K. in 2018-19. However, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is the unseen hidden problem of chilling effects and self-censorship in the university. Uh, and so in the report, we talk about, for example, the fact that certainly amongst right-leaning academics, in the social sciences and humanities, three quarters say that they experience a hostile climate in their department for their beliefs, half of them self-censor. It's that climate of self-censorship and chill, which in, in, in addition dissuades uh, particularly conservative or gender critical scholars from entering academia in the first place. So that reproduces a kind of monoculture and, and low viewpoint diversity. And I think it is a, a justifiable aim also of academia to try and ask a full range of questions. And when there is censorship and chilling, many questions aren't asked and many answers aren't given. So I think there's a strong sort of academic rationale uh, for opening up uh, the university and, and clamping down, I guess, on some of this uh, self-censorship. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that there's an overall chilling effect that comes from informal pressuring. But as far as I know, our Article 10 right to free expression, and I'm an Article 10 fundamentalist doesn't include the right to feel as if our views and our values are well liked by the people around us so how do you legislate against people feeling a bit uncomfortable without turning the government into the thought police at our academic institutions really good question so there's two aspects to this one is what i call hard authoritarianism which comes from actual censorship, use of the disciplinary apparatus of the university to punish. And that comes often through formal complaints. A lot of what the government is doing here is simply trying to give academics recourse if they are accused, for example, uh, and to protect them from that kind of hard authoritarianism, which does contribute to the chilling effect. Uh, data I have on the U.S., for example, would suggest one in three conservative academics and graduate students has either been threatened with discipline or discipline. So that is actually formal processes. Now, you're right. In terms of the informal, you're, of course, people can associate with whoever they want, but discriminating on the basis of, of political belief is also not permissible. So that kind of political discrimination is something that should not be permissible. If you're hiring for a position, you should not be able to say, we are not going to take anyone who's a known conservative or Labour Party voter. And this can also help, by the way, not just the right, but the left. It's important to note that criticism of Israel, of prevent you know, Middle East politics, all of that will be empowered uh, by these measures as well. So the, we, I'm hopeful that we can move to a kind of bipartisan consensus around free speech protections in, in the university. Thanks very much indeed.
Thank you. Our next witness is uh, Zamzam Ibrahim, who's former president of the National Union of Students. Um, uh, do you recognise uh, uh, that picture that's been painted, that if you don't go along with current progressive orthodoxy, think there might be something to be said for the British Empire, say, or that biological sex is immutable and male-bodied people shouldn't be allowed into women's lavatories? You, you'd have a tough time at university. I mean, absolutely not. I think I think actually this this whole ideology that um, there's an issue and a concern of freedom of speech is so falsified and, and, and clearly has a hidden agenda behind it. I mean, the reality is the student unions are democratic bodies elected. It's 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 for students led by students and therefore um, and and governed by the uh, charity commission works closely with university institutions and therefore any event and anything that goes through and happens at a students union has already gone through a rigorous systems and processes. And McElvoy? I wondered about this idea that it's a distraction or a narrative that it doesn't really have. Uh, um, of content, the idea that free speech is in any sort of danger. Isn't it always a little bit of a risky route to take to deny that something exists when other people may feel strongly it does? It just doesn't suit our own particular view. I mean, the, the reality is the, the stats show otherwise, right? So actually, if there was a concern of freedom of speech on campuses through the lens that you're portraying, then of course, absolutely, it's something that I would um, explore. But actually, like, if there is a threat to freedom of speech on our campuses, then it's clearly, to me, through the prevent agenda, which is a an agenda that polices and and actually um, demonises people of colour and demonises Muslim students on campus, and 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 so actually, to me, the, there isn't a concern of freedom of speech. But if there were to be an issue with freedom of speech on campuses, it's actually the. So hang on, can I just check that you you do think therefore there is a uh, freedom of speech issue on campuses after all? It's just about something else. In this case, the prevents strategy, you know, anti-radicalisation uh, strategy that the government runs. So you do think that there is some form of threat to freedom of speech after all? So the concerns around freedom of speech and the existence of, of, of has been posed around students creating and, and no platforming and, and essentially creating a space in which we're not allowing people on campuses and we're not we're not allowing um, different thoughts and ideas and ideologies to be shared on campuses, which is absolutely untrue. Can I move us to something like more broadly, like cancel culture. Now, the idea that people should be blocked, should be removed from a job, ultimately, the ultimate sanction. But basically, isn't it just a, quite a negative way to go at debates, which you may well be able to win on your own terms by keeping the door open as widely as possible? I mean, do you see any kind of difficult red line there? I mean, not at all. I think I think this whole concept of con cancel culture comes out of actually um, it isn't this, this idea that somebody says something once or does something once it comes out from mm. um, continuous practice and an ideology that we don't agree with and I think if an, if an individual can decide to not like and, 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 and not want to work with or not invite somebody um, that isn't essentially being cancelled that's just me deciding I don't like you and that's absolutely fine I think <laughs> well that, that is true I mean, you'd, be very, you'd be very free to you know, cancel me or cancel any commentator journalist politician or, or whatever that that is your perfect Right, but when you say an ideology we don't agree with, it does sound like you almost think there is an ideological war going on here. Some of the other witnesses thought that was a bad thing and reduced ultimately our liberal freedoms and our pluralism. Do we run that risk? 
I mean, absolutely not. I think universities are spaces to develop critical thinkers. And I always say that university um, should remain and our campus should remain spaces where you are challenged, where you where your thoughts and your ideologies become challenged. Actually, if you go to university and come out the exact same way as you went into university, you haven't done it right. And so actually, I don't, I don't think that is a risk um, that is posed in the sense that what I'm talking about, I suppose, from the sense of my own opinion, is that if somebody, if I don't agree with somebody's ideologies and they don't align to mine, and um, they haven't allowed me to um, explain to them my concerns and my issues and my and my viewpoint, then you know there's there's no reason for me to engage and there's no reason for me to pretend to like somebody or pretend to um, keep them around my space. And and so I have a I have a right to control what what's around me and my space. Um, and so in the same way that students have the ability to do that in 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 the events that they organise. Tim Stanley. I want to pick up on what you were just talking about there because it's very interesting to me. I, I was no-platformed in 2014 when I was invited to Oxford uh, to do a discussion about abortion. It was a balanced discussion, but it was closed down by the threat of student protest. And what I found really fascinating was that those who didn't want us to even have this debate on campus argued that it shouldn't have to happen here and that students shouldn't have to invite someone into their house who they don't want to be there, that this is their space. And if they don't want to have that discussion taking place within their space, then they should be able to free, they should be free to be able to say, we're not going to have it. Is that broadly speaking the way you see it, is that universities is a space that students should be able to control who enters uh, into that space? Yes, I do believe that student unions um, and, and, and student societies should be able to have say over who comes to events and who is invited to events. And, would, you go, um, would, you, sorry, would you go as far, therefore, as saying that a campus is like one's house or one's home? Yeah, I feel like campuses are 100% um, the, the, the home of, of, of students, of academics, of, of the local community mm. that live in those areas and, and, and give into and participate in it. It just it seems to me there's a tension there because I agreed with you very strongly when you said that people should feel should should be challenged at university. They should encounter different ideas. But there's a tension, isn't there, between that and a home. A home is a safe space where you don't want to be challenged, but a university is a place where you do want to be ta- challenged. So how do you resolve the tension between hearing new ideas but also being able to say, I don't want to hear that idea? Somebody that's been the president of, of a local student union, been, been the president of a national students union, I know how these communities are like those creative, co-creative spaces blossom and, and get stronger because people are able to challenge each other and, and learn from each other in a space and, and most definitely safe space. I don't know about you, but in, for me, I have very uncomfortable conversations at home with my family um, and I challenge my, my, my parents and my, and when, when they think a certain way. So of course you want to be able to first of all, nurture and, and understand where people are coming from um, but actually really re- relay the, the concerns and the issues that you have in a space where you won't be attacked for it. And I think that's what student unions do in ensuring that what you are coming to say is actually the like the ability to debate and, 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 and garner knowledge rather than just coming to incite hatred. And I think right. those are very different things. Right. Zamzam Ibrahim, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Our next witness is Professor Jonathan Haidt, American social psychologist and author of a number of influential and best-selling books on the intuitive foundations of morality, including The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Um, Professor Haidt, in, in a sentence, in a summary, we'll go on to unpack it. How so, as far as universities are concerned, do you think? There's actually a lot of data on this, and, and what we find is that the average student has not changed much. American students are still very supportive of free speech. What has really changed since 2014 or 2015 is the social dynamics 
so that the extremes are empowered now to inflict great harm on people who could who might have said something a couple of years ago uh, as part of a discussion without any bad consequence the dynamic shifted first on universities and now in the last few years we've seen the same dynamic in newsrooms uh, especially those on the left and we're now also seeing a cancel culture on the right where people moderate conservatives are afraid to speak because of the uh, the wrath they will experience from uh, the small minority empowered by social media on the right ash saka isn't there also a political right that through non-violent and democratic means that we can reshape cultural norms? And so young people have got a right to say they don't want to engage with certain ideas, maybe because they've been discredited. <clears throat> so aren't you essentially trying to say that some forms of freedom of speech are incompatible with conservatives feeling comfortable to express themselves? What you describe is the normal process of cultural evolution where uh, things that were common, you know, jokes that were made when I was a kid are, are not appropriate now. And that's progress. And if that were to occur on, on a kind of an even playing field where people make arguments uh, for why there should be a change, well, that would be great. But rather what has happened is, you know, for thousands of years, everybody has verbal barbs, let's say. Everybody can uh, harm other people you know, with, it by, with their wit or by making fun of them or with verbal barbs. But then suddenly around 2015, it's as though, as though everybody was given a dart gun that can actually shoot actual darts into your skin. And so it's, we're not having a reasonable conversation, uh, a tug of war between left and right over speech norms. We're having the intimidation of the majority by a small minority empowered with these dart guns. Um, so that's why we're seeing it, it began first on the left, and, and many people recognize it as a form of illiberalism. Uh, and then it's come screaming out of the right with an, another nasty form of illiberalism. Um, in both cases, the extremes want to tear down everything. There's a kind of a nihilism uh, on, on both extremes. But isn't the point of academia to be able to make value judgments about ideas? And that includes <clears throat> being able to say, we don't want to hear it. So you know what? I don't need to learn more about Holocaust denial or eugenics. They've been pretty well debunked, and I don't want to dignify it with a debate. We want to push things forward into new ideas, new ways of thinking. Well, this is the problem that John Stuart Mill uh, uh, raised so so beautifully and insightfully 150 years ago. Um, and one of his first points was things that we think are wrong. Uh, sometimes with time, we find, uh, we find that there is some evidence for them. Now, with Holocaust denial, that's extremely unlikely. But I'd ask you this. Suppose a scholar found in the old Soviet archives that there, you know, there was some evidence, not that the Holocaust didn't happen, obviously it happened. But if there was some evidence that it wasn't six million, it was four million, you know, would, would, would you allow such a scholar? Uh, you know, this is, we're not talking about a crank on, on right wing talk radio. We're talking about a scholar, an accredited historian. Would you allow that historian to present? And I put it to you that a lot of the cancel culture recently um, is uh, scholars and historians and, and people such as that who have a finding um, that, is, that violates orthodoxy on LGBT or trans issues or race issues or, or immigration issues. And such people will be no platform. They will be shut down. Mona Siddiqui. Professor Haidt, I've been an academic for almost 25 years. I've lectured in the UK, abroad, in the US, um, in, the, in the Middle East, without any censorship. And I've spoken about all these issues, whether it's trans rights or sex and sexuality, um, race theory, all the things that we consider culturally sensitive. I've never once been censored 
or uh, told that you can't pursue that line of questioning. And I'm just thinking, isn't really this a little bit of a myth that we've created around a free speech crisis? I see your point that for most people, there's been no problem. So it's not as though it's not as though there is a sort of an uh, an even or consistent uh, threat detector out there that will that will destroy anyone who strays over the line. It's pretty random and haphazard, and all it takes is one person to start the to start the public condemnation, and others will join in. Now, I assume that you are not mostly disagreeing with the progressive position. That's where well, you get in trouble. No, not um, at and all. Also, no, go ahead. I, I was going to say not at all. I have challenged people on all kinds of things. I've challenged people on penal reform. I've challenged people on concepts and notions around paedophilia because I believe very strongly, like I'm sure you do, that universities are places which should not only challenge but unsettle people. But isn't the real question is that you want freedom to speak, not as an absolute right, but freedom to speak without the consequences that that freedom can also bring. Oh, no, of course. Right. The idea that freedom of speech means you can say what you want whenever you want um, is absurd. In fact, it's funny. I just, I, you know, I often read Stoic uh, writings in the morning, and I just this morning, I'm reading Epictetus, and he says, uh, unchecked speech is like a vehicle wildly lurching out of control and destined for a ditch. You know, he talks about how you you should not just speak whatever's on your mind. You should think before you speak. I'm talking about the fact that society's values shift, and that is reflected in academic research and scholarship. And most academics know what is expected of them. They know what their students want. They know how to, to challenge students and to challenge each other. So aren't we just making too much of the fact that there may be a small group of people who are now finding that their views are no longer fashionable? If it was just a matter of what's happening to the average, I would agree with you. This could be seen as just cultural evolution. But it's not a shift in the average. It's a shift in the power of the extremes. And we saw this first on campuses around 2014, 2015. But now it's flooded into journalism and our politics. So the Republican Party in particular has a terrible problem that the extremes are now so empowered to destroy the reputation. And even now it's gotten to the point where if you are called out in social media, you can expect hostile calls, maybe even death threats to your to your phone, people showing up at, at your house, intimidating your kids. And so it's it's the shift from making arguments based on words in a limited forum to the mindset of all out war fighting evil. And each side fights its own its own evil. The left is focused on fighting fascism and racism in the United States. Uh, and the right is focused on fighting the woke left. And so um, uh, even if it's only a small change in the average, it's a huge change in dynamics brought to us by, by moving on to social media between 2009 and 2012 um, and rising political polarization. Professor Hyde, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. My pleasure. Our last witness is uh, Alison Scott Bowman, uh, Professor of Society and Belief at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, and author of Freedom of Speech in Universities, Islam, Charities and Counterterrorism. Uh, Professor Bowman, uh, what do you think's changed with recent generations and what do you think is the main issue here? Yes, I think what we're hearing today is that uh, there are these false narratives that universities really must face up to. <clears throat> they have to stop ignoring these false narratives that are eating away at their re reputations. They need to re-articulate to a disillusioned public why they, the universities, and the public are so critical to liberal democracy. Tim Stanley? 
I did used to teach until about 10 years ago. And one thing I worry about if I was to go back into the classroom today is would my students simply listen to me? Uh, because I, I fear that the ability to hand down knowledge is being undermined, that the, what's the issue here isn't just the free speech question. It's actually the ability to teach. And a lot of my academic friends say to me, students are more like consumers now. They want to control syllabus. They want to control how things are done. And that is greatly undermining the ability to do the one thing university is really genuinely there for, which is teaching plus research. I don't think I agree with that. I think students today are still absolutely thirsty for new knowledge, new information, new understanding. But what has happened is that the walls of the seminar have become, if you like, permeable because of social media. Mm. So there are issues which can spill out into the public world, which perhaps should be kept into a seminar. Perhaps what's discussed in a seminar should stay there. So that allows students to find out, to sit at the feet metaphorically, of those who know more than they do, but also in interacting with that to be able to make mistakes in a seminar, to change their minds, to safely articulate complex, difficult ideas, courteously and carefully, and to experiment with new ideas. But at that courteous and careful point, I think everyone would agree with that as a, as a basic point of being human and humane, but it, it, it's translating into a policing of language, isn't it? That there's got to be a certain formula for the way that you put ideas across. And isn't that a kind of censorship? I don't think that's so. I think that the, the point is that we need to really put into practice very assiduously what we all say that we do all the time anyway, but we don't necessarily. The fact that we should distinguish between the person and their views. We should listen properly, active listening, instead of just waiting to make our point. And we should also attempt in a group where we don't all agree to decide that there will be some outcome that we could all act upon and agree upon. So, mm. So the idea that we can challenge and understand ideologies that underpin systems of power is something that we really need to enact so the students who are distressed by what their academic might tell them about something can actually challenge it within class. They don't have to spill out onto social media. That means being able to disagree with your tutor, look your tutor in the eyes and say, I really can't believe, I can't agree with your belief system because it's different from mine. And then to be able to debate that. This is what we really, really need to have the confidence to do. And McElvoy? Being an old liberal and pluralist principle, really, that societies are at their best when they're able to move forward together, they have a common humanity and a common endeavour. Does that idea then hold up to a more heterogeneous and diverse academy that you've described? I think it does, because I think that the, the issues that, that are raised in the world today should bind us together. And I think if I can give you a practical example, that in, um, in one, we live in one of the oldest democracies in the world, and it does function well if we test it almost to destruction. So I've set up a system with a small group of students where we're creating a proper pathway between Westminster and academic evidence-based knowledge. This means that young academics can actually speak truth to power. This well, is that's, the kind anyway, of thing. that sounds very positive and very wholesome. But we've had a lot of kind of negative examples as we've gone through the show tonight. We've had people talking about vilification, about not wanting to hear certain things, about having a right to cut themselves off from certain views. Now, to me, even if you've got a uh, something positive set up that links uh, academia to Westminster... That doesn't sound exactly like the culture that is out there. And it may be at the margins. It may be growing. We don't really yet know, but it doesn't sound so wholesome. Yes, wholesome. I haven't been called wholesome for a long time, Anne. It's quite, it's quite, it's quite sweet. Thank you. Um, but I think, of course, you're right that there are issues. 
Um, Muslim students and Jewish students generally feel safe on British campuses, but they do report that um, a minority of them, a significant minority, about a quarter, um, do feel threatened if they uh, if they own their identity, if you like. So they may decide to self-censor. And this is unacceptable. Well, that brings us full neatly full circle tonight, which is for there to be a problem with free speech on campuses and around academia, it doesn't mean that everybody's got to be being stopped from saying what they would say if they have a certain number of views. It simply means that a substantial number of people feel in some way that there are difficulties for them to own their views and stand up for them. So it sounds like now you do think there is a problem. There is definitely an issue which needs to be resolved and it will be made worse by the government's attempts to intervene because the government will definitely be attempting to police uh, open discussion. And this means that it won't be possible for uh, people whose identity causes difficulties for them, such as Jewish and Muslim students, it will not be possible for them to discuss openly uh, what their issues are. Because Isn't the issues- government simply asking universities to be a bit more muscular in defensive free speech and that, meanwhile, back on Planet Real, there's not exactly going to be a sort of government agency at the back of every meeting of a student union or a seminar room. It's simply asking for greater awareness, which might be called for. I think the greater awareness is much better managed within the uh, the academic freedom, which is uh, the right of every student and every academic, as long as they keep it legal. And the institutional autonomy is a is a, is a really really important privilege that we must retain. So that so that to ensure and that the democratic experience of all students is not weakened but strengthened by being able to discuss difficult issues, which the government is not enthusiastic about us discussing. Professor Bowman, thanks very much indeed for joining us this evening. Uh, well, panel, the argument has gone in a number of different directions, uh, hasn't it? On the, on the main point, Mona, Mona Siddiqui, whether there is a big problem on campus, you don't think so. Our first witness, Professor Kaufman, reckoned there very much was, and he had quite a lot of data from his report to back it up. Did he give you pause for thought? I am sure that there are institutions here and in the US where people have got into trouble for saying certain things. But I think that's a far cry from saying that we're in a crisis of self-censorship or being censored by colleagues and students. If we think of universities as democratic institutions, autonomous institutions, then we have to give them the responsibility to steer their own course. And I think this sense that uh, people are being censored and no platformed everywhere and people aren't being able to express themselves, and that's the corrosion of university life, I think is a myth. Tim Stanley? Uh, look, normally, outside of universities, conservatives might find themselves to be in the majority. Inside universities, they very often find themselves in having an experience that often minorities have outside of the universities, if that makes sense. And what I would say to Mona, and I suspect Ash, is listen to my lived experience here, guys. Uh, <laughs> you have to be conservative to understand what I mean by that sense of self-censorship. Um, progressives in universities, of course, don't think there's self-censorship because whenever they say it, say something, the majority of people there agree with them 
But whenever a minority, whenever a conservative person speaks out, it's not just a direct immediate blowback. It is that sense of, I dare not say this. I dare not raise this idea. I dare not explore this bit of research area. I dare not say this in my class because I just, I can't deal with the fallout in terms of the career or student complaints. That's the kind of censorship we're seeing. It's not just dramatic no platforming. It is people self-censoring because they're frightened uh, of blowback. I was just going to say, Tim, I mean, what do you even mean by a conservative? And has it not occurred to you, <laughs> why is there, why are there so few conservatives, as you say, academics in British universities? Mm. And honestly, it does depend on what you mean by conservative. I know are not saying conservatives are thick, Mona? No, well, that's <laughs> I was rather wondering you that, that too. Ash <laughs> uh, 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 Tim, if you want to be considered part of the BAME community, we'll have you in a heartbeat. <laughs> you can come through the cookout anytime. Um, I mean, I say this with the greatest of respect. I think what this speaks to is that sense of a victim complex. All of us moderate and mitigate things that we say all the time. That's part of living in a society with other people. We have to navigate the anticipation of other people's disapproval. And I think that's a part of being human. For me, the problem is when formal censure comes in. And going back to what Professor Kaufman was saying, is that I think he blurred the line between those two things in quite an uncomfortable way. Um, and I think that the data wasn't necessarily... Um, abused but was stretched to the point of pulling a muscle to blur the distinction between informal acts of self-censorship and formal acts of censure. When I was teaching um, a global politics module at a university in the UK, I had to teach a lecture on terrorism. And the materials that I wanted to use included showing a bit of the Battle of Algiers, opening up discussions of Franz Fanon's defense of political violence. And I was really worried that I would fall foul of the prevent agenda. And being Muslim, not necessarily a very good one, but being ostensibly Muslim, that this would land me in trouble with the police. And for me, as long as conservatives aren't worried about getting in trouble with the police or being questioned by government officials about their teaching material, I think they've got it pretty much okay. Anne McElvoy, our second witness, uh, Zamzam Ibrahim, former president of the National Union of Students, um, uh, she, she reckoned that, uh, that this whole thing was uh, got up. It was all part of a, uh, of a, of a mm. hidden, hidden agenda and then argued her case very well. But I didn't quite grasp uh, where she was uh, on uh, the difference between no platforming and actually not inviting people whose ideology you didn't agree with or you could say, I don't particularly like you. I feel that there is a confusion here, and I think it's quite a fundamental one that was coming to the fore there, which is what happens if someone's invited and then they get disinvited, or what happens if you have some form of... There's a bit of a reliance on process and structures, which always makes me a, a, a little bit wary, because then you have to ask, well, who's really in control of these processes and, and structures? And are some people, or some views, more active and more actively in a position where they have a grip on student unions than others? But that's been the case for a, a very long time. I think where you do get into difficulties is the idea of of saying, well, if a certain number of people who are operating processes and structures think this person should not come or this view should not be put, then that is a sufficient argument. I think you can be very muscular about the way that you debate it, but ultimately you're going to have some people who others will find offensive. You're going to find some views. Some people will say, I've heard enough of them. I don't want to hear them. They also don't have to attend that event. But it's a very slippery line, you know. It's The, the argument that it, people tend to use is Holocaust denial. That's the kind of easy one. It's things that fall short of that 
that a certain group of people don't like hearing that's really, I think, the contested area here. Mona, our third witness, Professor Hyde, his view, uh, to summarise, was what's really changed, I I think he said since 2015, uh, was that the extremes now uh, have enormous power and then can inflict uh, dreadful harm, mainly, I think, uh, because of uh, the poison dripped in by social media from time to time. Uh, is that not something that you can uh, you can understand and maybe even partly agree with? No, I agree, but I think that's partly because speech in itself has never been more free or less inter- uh, intermediated. The problem for me is that why are we so reluctant to admit that people live and thrive and flourish in contexts. Now, free speech is only ever possible in an abstract view. If it is actually put into practice as a lived reality, there's always going to be consequences. So when you have the extremes here, there are extremes, and the extremes often flow in from social media, and they challenge students. Any lecturer, any academic worth their salt, especially in the arts and humanities, would know how to challenge that, would know how to steer that. And McElvoy? The reason I'm very leery of this argument that that, that Mona has put, which it goes along, it always has that slightly sonorous, well, there are consequences here, is that in the right hands, that simply means you've got to put up with what follows from what you say, you've got to put up with a robust argument, and it can be unpleasant, and it can make you feel a bit got at. And I think we've probably all had that on this panel, being in the public debate at times in our lives. Where I think it comes uncomfortably close for those of us who've lived in authoritarian societies is that there is always the sense of there's a price to be paid, there's a context, it's not just a freedom to say anything, you have to be prepared to be very brave or you have to be prepared to not perhaps be uh, loved and welcomed in certain environments. What happens then is naturally, other than the very brave, the kind of dissident class is that a lot of people do go into their shells and we lose something if we lose those voices from the debate. Well, honestly, Anne, I don't know any of my colleagues who've gone into their shells. More, but Mona, you keep saying this, but you but don't no. accept, I think, that these but, are people who don't have a problem. But and why do the you, fact that they're not telling you they have a problem... You, no, 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 but why do universities have to be separate from all the other organisations and institutions in society that also work in a social, moral and political context? A moral because freedom of thought and freedom of speech is much more fundamental to the mission of universities. I would be very happy for it to be considered fundamental to everything. But I think really, if you start to mess with it too much in the academic yes, sphere, you really academic, do end up somewhere no, a bit more difficult. But that's what I'm saying. My argument is that it's not an abstract. It's it, Freedom of thought and expression comes through the mouths of real people. It is transmitted to real students who have real lives and, and there are consequences to it all. It's nothing, it's nothing to do with authoritarianism. It's about how do you manage both your own expectations and the institutions where you work. Ash, Saka, I'll leave the last word with you. If I could be really pretentious for a second and just appeal to my favourite theorist of all time, Antonio Gramsci, the kind of moral panic that we're all participating in by having this conversation is a Gramscian panic and it's an outgrowth of the right having been able to very successfully capture the state, maintain control of the economy, but they're worried about their grasp on other institutions and civil society.